Hello and welcome back to Victorian Samplings. I'm Vanessa Warren. Like many of my fellow Victorianists, I've spent a lot of time visiting museums and volunteering in museums. I like going to museums with my students and exploring both the Victorian era origins of many museums and the complicated cultural work done by and in museum spaces. I confess I daydream about a second career as a curator or perhaps a conservator. Today's guests, Amy Woodson Bolton, Julie Hollenbach, and Nicola Watson, have done far more thinking and likely less daydreaming than I have about museums, and I'm eager to learn from them. Let's get started. Julie Hollenbach is an assistant professor of craft history and material cultures at NASCAD University. Julie's research expands considerations of historical and contemporary amateur and professional craft as a gendered and classed activity to explicitly consider how craft is a racializing process that enshrines whiteness under settler colonialism. Welcome, Julie. Thanks so much for having me, Vanessa. We're speaking today about the O'Keefe Ranch, a ranch developed by a white settler that has in recent decades been transformed into a tourist destination. Can you give us a brief introduction? Of course. O'Keefe Ranch is a historic heritage site that since the 1970s has preserved the story of the settler Anglophone O'Keefe family, one of the first to settle on Silco territory in the 1860s in what is now the town of Vernon, in the interior of the province of British Columbia in Canada. Julie, the story of the O'Keefe Ranch is a story about five women. Can you introduce us to them? Of course. Yes, yeah, so this is a story about five women. And the first woman in the story is actually me. So it's really important to situate myself in the telling of the story, especially because this work stems from my curiosity and my engagement with and trying to understand the inheritance of whiteness and settler colonialism through intergenerational processes and practices. And as a child of two German immigrants who settled in the town of Vernon in the 1980s, what this process and these practices of inheritance of settler colonialism is for newcomers. So this is a really personal story, or it starts out as a very personal story. And in thinking about the spaces and the places that imbue locations with these settler colonial fantasies and narratives and how they structure values and beliefs in a local regional society, settler colonial society in, you know, 1980, 2000, 2022. What are those sites? What are those places? And in, in thinking back or in mining my own position and space, I thought about this instance or this thing that occurred when I was in grade three, which would have been about the mid nineties. I would have been about eight years old. Maybe it was grade four. So perhaps nine. And it would have been about February. I remember because it was snowy and slushy and gross. And I was wearing big boots and my class went on a field trip to Oki French to learn about the Oki family, but also about this family and their settlement in that area. So there was a group of us, I'd say about 20 students, girls and boys, nine, maybe eight years old, in our big winter coats and our big winter boots. And we went out to O'Keefe Ranch 
and we met a guide who was in period costume who guided us initially around the site of the ranch. It was snowy, so we didn't walk very far, but we could see where the forge, the blacksmith's forge was, where the candy store was, the general store. We saw the church, and then we went into the main house for the history lesson. We went through the different rooms, the school rooms, all of them restored and preserved and presented to be authentic to what that family, what their life would have been like at the peak of their history, which would have been about 1900. When we got into the parlor, which was the front sitting room, the guide shared with us the domestic practices of the many women who made up this family, including what the education for these young women was, middle class, upper middle class girls. And she instructed in the mid-1990s, this group of eight and nine-year-old girls and boys, she said, take your clipboards. We all had clipboards because we had worksheets. And she said, put them on your heads. Something that the girls, the O'Keefe girls, would have had to learn was comportment. And she said they would have practiced walking around the rooms with books on their heads. And she said, can any of you do that? And because I was really precocious, this was already something that I had practiced and nailed. So I got up, put the clipboard on my head, and ran across the room in my big boots. And because I was taller and bigger and heavier than a lot of the other kids in my class, like I made noise. I was a boisterous eight or nine-year-old girl, but I was really good. I didn't drop the clipboard and I just ran across the room. And she was aghast. She said, no, 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 that's not how you do it. That's not elegant. That's not graceful. That's not how ladies move. And I thought back, you know, as I was, you know, more recently in 2015, when I was engaging with this line of thought, I thought back about how instructive that moment was to me, my eight or nine-year-old self, how that was a disciplining moment that really introduced ideas of correct gender, correct race, but also correct class in terms of like a comportment or an education. And in my own studies of art history and museum studies, I thought about how, yes, museums are sites where what is on display often offers a program, a didactic program, an ideological program, but it is also the practices and the social and embodied realities of those spaces that imbue values onto bodies. And so then I started looking into the history of O'Keefe Ranch, the house, the compound, as one of the first sites in the Okanagan Valley and how it had a major part to play in the settler society of the mid-19th century and continues in 2022 to be a major site where the narrative about that place's history is informed by. I want to introduce the second woman in this story, or really the first woman. And her name is Alapetsa Stelakaya. Alapetsa Stelakaya was a Silcha woman who lived during the mid-19th century. And for thousands of years, long before settlers, the Silcha had resided and continued to reside on the territory along Okanagan Lake in what is now the southern central interior of the province of British Columbia. In around 1867, the archive suggests that Alapetsa met Cornelius O'Keefe, an Irish Catholic cattle driver originally from Fallowfield, a small town outside of Ottawa. Alapetza became Cornelius's common-law wife, living with him and building with him a crude log house and then slowly other outhouses on a property, and eventually had two children with him. The pair were together for almost a decade. So a little bit more about Cornelius O'Keefe. He was an Irish Catholic son of new immigrants who settled in Fallowfield, as one son in a large family, lacking in prospects, 
Cornelius went out west in 1861 to drive cattle from what is now known as Oregon up to the Caribou gold fields. In 1867, Cornelius decided there was more profit to be made in breeding cattle than in driving it, and so preempted 160 acres of land near the northernmost tip of Okanagan Lake, an area which he had driven cattle through over the last five years. It was an area that he was familiar with and used to grazing that cattle. So he had a relationship with that place and perhaps also the settlement of Silcha people at the head of the lake, at the top of the lake. Having done very well for himself in 1877, Cornelius O'Keefe returned to Fallowfield in search of a white wife. There he met and eventually married Marianne McKenna, a woman who was 27 years old, 12 years Cornelius's junior. Like Cornelius, Marianne was Irish Catholic and came from a recently immigrated family of farmers. When she arrived in the Okanagan Valley, she brought the total number of white women in the British Columbian Southern Interior up to three. What Marianne may not have known before she returned with Cornelius to his ranch was that she was supplanting Cornelius's first wife, Alapetza Stelakaya. Some accounts suggest that Alapetza returned to live with her two children in her community, receiving compensation from Cornelius, which was unusual at the time. Other accounts say that she stayed on the ranch for a few years, performing domestic labor for the new couple before returning to her family and kin. I'll note that all of the accounts that I was able to find of this were derived of settler oral histories and so are embedded with certain biases. Over the 16 years of Marianne and Cornelius's marriage, they had nine children. In 1899, at the age of 49, Marianne McKenna died suddenly of a stroke. The next woman I want to introduce is Elizabeth Tierney, Cornelius's second or third wife, depending on your count. So following Marianne's death, Cornelius returned to Fallowfield in 1900 and married Elizabeth Tierney, the daughter of an affluent Irish Catholic farming family. Elizabeth and Cornelius were together for 19 years and had six children. And after Cornelius's death in 1919, Elizabeth continued to manage the ranch on her own throughout the Depression until her own death in 1929. And this is where I'll introduce the fifth woman, Betty Tierney O'Keefe. So Elizabeth's youngest son, Tierney, took over operation of the ranch upon his mother's death and continued to manage it with his wife, Betty Tierney O'Keefe, until the late 1960s. During the 1960s, Tierney and Betty decided to restore the estate to what they imagined it was like during its colonial heyday in order to open it up as an attraction to the public. This included going to a lot of thrift stores to augment and fill out some of the ranch's collection of extant material culture, but it also meant looking at photographs and returning some of the rooms to what they would have looked like 20, 40, or 50 years prior. Around the time of the Canadian centenary, Tierney O'Keefe sold the ranch to the Devonian Foundation of Calgary, who then donated the historic site to the city of Vernon. And it has been open as a historic cultural site for the last 60 years and remains a key symbol of identity for local settler community, as well as a prime attraction for tourists. So at this point, I've introduced the five central characters or women in this story and talked a little bit about the domestic situation of the ranch. Julie, can we tap into your expertise on craft? and ask you to talk about crafted objects, about what has been preserved and exhibited at the O'Keefe Ranch? Of course. 
O'Keefe Ranch is really interesting and remarkable as one of the heritage, settler heritage houses or museums that has one of the largest holdings of original material culture. So that means objects that belong to the original family. And while, as I mentioned, some things have been bought to fill out the collection, a lot of the things that you can see at that site belong to the family members over the course of the ranch's operation, which was roughly around 100 years. And many of the objects in that collection on display and in the archive include crafted objects or instructions for crafted objects and periodicals. There is a set of embroidered table whites. There are two cross-stitched samplers. There is a scrapbook with embroidery practice sheets in it. There is a chair with an embroidered seat cushion. And there is an embroidered altar cloth that remains in St. Anne's Church, which is the church that was located on the ranch. With some of the handcrafted objects, for example, the seat cover that's embellished with Berlin work floral composition, we know that this was completed by Elizabeth's youngest daughter, Eileen. Some of the other pieces in the collection, however, there are only fragments of information that suggests either who the maker was or what the context of the piece was or the time frame of the piece's creation. So we don't have all the details. So this is the case, for example, for the set of table linens that bear Elizabeth O'Keefe's embroidered monogram. So we know that it was made by Elizabeth, but we don't know when it was made. There are other pieces, for example, where it's not known whether the piece was made by Marianne, Elizabeth, or their daughters, or if they were actually crafted objects that were procured by Betty and Tierney as examples of idealized feminine domestic leisure. So speaking of makers, Julie, where is Alapetza in the archive and displayed material culture of the ranch? That's a really important and interesting question. Today, the material culture displayed in the historic O'Keefe Ranch and its museum provides a striking testament to the life and the work of the mistresses that kept the ranch over the years. Marianne, Elizabeth, and Betty, all visible in the story that the ranch is presenting to visitors. However, the absence of any material evidence of Alapetza and her children from the material of the home is really indicative of intentional acts of removal and erasure. I'll remind our, the listeners that Cornelius and Alapetza were together for almost a decade, and they would have been living on that site for 10 years. I invite everyone listening to think about what they did 10 years ago, where they were, to think about all the things they've accumulated and touched, made, bought, transactions, exchanges of stuff in 10 years. And, and so for there to not be any conclusive material evidence of Alapetza on this site isn't accidental It needs to be understood as very intentional, as an intentional action, as an intentional process. And there's a lot of evidence of the way the way that Cornelius's indigenous descendants were removed from the story of the family, the site, but then also the town or the history of the town of Vernon. We don't really have a lot of time to get into that here, but that exists for people who are curious. So here I'll bring Alan Sakula's writing on the archive into the discussion. Alan Sakula is a photography scholar who writes about archives as highly edited collections that make concrete and visible a particular narrative that privileges certain bodies, institutions, and histories over others. Alan Sakula's work is very helpful for me in engaging with and thinking through the archive and display at O'Keefe Ranch. For the Anglo-Canadian O'Keefe family and the settler colonial society that they represented to be visible, comprehensible, and dominant, the people they displaced and supplanted, those people's lives and their culture, including material culture in this case, 
had to be assimilated, appropriated, and domesticated, or obliterated. And any evidence in the house or on the property of Cornelius's prior union and family with Alapetza, a Silica woman, would have conflicted with Marianne and later Elizabeth's precarious identities as genteel white ladies on the colonial frontier. Within the tenuous social arrangements and hierarchies of Western colonial society, white women's bourgeois femininity was constituted and legitimated through the civilizing action of domesticity, of making house, of the boundary maintenance that went along with making the house. Even insofar as the small, everyday tasks of needlework and handicraft and other labor or leisure. Oftentimes, settler colonialism is talked about as treaties, as wars, as governance and political negotiations. But importantly, settler colonialism was also about domesticity and domestication. So in order for Marianne and Elizabeth to thrive in their roles as wives to a prominent settler and be exemplary as mothers to the community's future leaders, all evidence of Cornelius's, you know, quote-unquote, inappropriate or illegitimate prior union had to be aggressively denied and erased. The way that this consistent and durational erasure occurred time and time again was intentional, and it would have almost certainly structured the social reality and the experience of daily life for each of those women, for their families, and for the community at large. It would have been an ongoing process. And it would have also structured the social reality in the daily life of Alapetza and her children, her family and her kin. These instances become structuring events that create precedents for relations between indigenous peoples and settlers and become the precedents for relations between indigenous society and settler society in that place. Julie, thank you so much for all the insights you shared and the stories you shared, including the story of your own childhood encounter with this site. I'm really grateful. Thanks so much for having me, Vanessa, and I'm really glad to have had the opportunity to share. everyone, my name is Anne Hung, and today I am joined by Dr. Amy Woodson-Bolton. Amy is a professor and past chair of the History Department at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, California. Her work concentrates on cultural reactions to industrialization, particularly the history of art museums, the social role of art, and the changing status and meaning of art and nature in modern society. Thank you for joining us, Amy. I'm thrilled to be here. So you work with museums and the objects we see in museums are so often distorted by colonial lenses. Before we discuss any specific objects, could you provide some insight into the imperial priorities of Britain in the late 19th century and how these might have informed how cultural objects are classified? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, the British imperial history is so big, but it's helpful to think about the kind of earlier phase in the Americas that probably lots of Americans are more familiar with. We're kind of taught the colonial phase and think about that break with the revolutions in the Americas in the late 18th century. And then the way that Britain, even in the 18th century, had shifted into the Pacific, to India. And then the 19th century really sees this new focus on Asia and Africa. 
And one of the things that I see and I'm studying in my new work on the history of anthropology is the way that new theories about the evolution of culture connected all of the indigenous peoples of the Americas, of Africa, of the Pacific Islands, of Australia and New Zealand into these theories of primitive society. So when we're thinking about like, what is the context, what's the imperial context, that context facilitated the movement of objects into Britain, right? Like people were on the ground, but then also the theories fed back into imperial culture. And so that's really what I'm interested in here. And, you know, my earlier work was on the history of art museums in industrial society. And, you know, this project, I really want to bring those two into conversation. You know, what does it mean that we have these art museums on the one hand, and then we have museums of anthropology on the other? So that imperial context, I think, is so important, not just for the anthropological specimens, but also for the conversation about art, about, you know, what art was and what it was doing. Yeah, it's so interesting how the anthropological aspects, as well as like these artistic objects, are are intertwined, but not in the way that the imperial myth of like indigenous monoculture was like making them out to be. So yeah, important work to to separate them out, but also understand how they're connected as you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's so fascinating for me is the work that the objects were doing in British culture. And kind of why, why was it important to say there was such a thing as primitive society or that to define, I mean, one of the things I think is so interesting is this impulse that so many of the anthropologists had to define primitive cultures, so-called primitive cultures, as being the closest to nature. And the more I get into it, the more I feel like it's then interesting to think, oh, well, this is the same moment as debates in British painting about the relationship of art to nature. You know, is it about truth to nature? Is it about building on nature? Is it, you know, does it have nothing to do with nature? Is it all about the pursuit of some kind of ideal beauty? So I think often, and because of the history of disciplines at this very moment of the late 19th century, the disciplines of art history and history and anthropology and sociology and psychology, right? They're all forming. And so much of that interaction between the disciplines and that distinction means that we have often not looked at these conversations together. They end up being separated. And so the institutions and the discipline are part of the product and the project that I'm that kind of historical moment that I'm looking at. Sort of jumping off that as well, uh, you talk about the emergence of these disciplines, and I know that a, a large part of them contributed to like this obsession with taxonomy, this need to classify everything that is acquired and, and observed. One example is a dagger handle that's in the Pitt Rivers Museum. Could you describe this object a little and maybe talk about the implications of the inscription on it? Yeah, and I should say that I have been using documents that the Pitt Rivers Museum shared with me from work that they have been doing to open up these objects to researchers from their community of origin, which is the Haida people. And some of these these insights came in particular from a Haida artist, Christian White, who when he came to see the object, 
was able to really redefine and reorient the way that I think we can see it. So the way it was originally described, it was described as a bear with a frog on top of it. And the person who collected this, Reverend Harrison in 1891, described a whole dance that he observed where he understood that there was a marriage happening between someone of a bear clan and someone of a frog clan. And so he saw this dagger handle as representing this union of the bear people and the frog people. When Christian White saw the object, he said, well, actually this is a bear with a bear cub. And as soon as you reorient yourself to seeing it that way, you can see that the little creature on top of the bear, previously identified as a frog, has ears. And you start to wonder why nobody noticed that the the so-called frog has ears because most frogs do not have ears, right? And it also, of course, calls into question and it kind of is very interesting to think about what the Reverend Harrison was bringing to bear to what he saw in this ritual that he observed. So the theory of totemism here was really shaping how he witnessed what he observed. And the theory of totemism had its origins in a number of works, but especially some books and articles from the 1860s and 70s, and then became even more popular in the 1880s, 90s, 1910s even. And the idea was basically that so-called primitive peoples thought of animals as their ancestors and identified with a particular animal or plant. And then this meant that if they were, let's say, of the bear clan, that they could only marry outside of the bear clan. And it became this really popular theory, and I think also really shaped the way that a lot of objects entered into collections. That is, any natural representation or a representation that was identifiable as an animal or a plant, the British museum curators and experts would say, oh, it's a totem, right? And so it became this really important kind of overarching theory of interpreting these indigenous objects. Mm -hmm. Pivoting a little bit, in your research, you pose a series of questions about how exhibits are organized. That is, what causes us to view objects as similar or different? What insights can we gain from the joint display of works of art with different histories? Why were some objects classified in the past as ethnological and others as art? Could you speak to these questions a bit? Yeah. So one of the things that I've looked at recently was an exhibition in Berlin, which was just a, a wonderful exhibition called Beyond Compare that brought African objects in dialogue with European decorative art at the Boda Museum there. And it was so interesting because those objects had been moved because they're shifting their displays of ethnographic objects into the Humboldt Forum. But at the Beyond Compare exhibition, the curators did a really beautiful job of calling attention to things that I think normally only specialists notice, like provenance and artist name and label and how do museums work? What are the kind of tools in a museum or what does a museum do to indicate that something is a work of art and what it means or what it in, its interpretation is. And so, I mean, I think the kinds of categories that we have for objects, like is this a work of art or is it an ethnographic object, 
can seem very normal and natural. And so one of the things I'm trying to do in my different research projects is to think about how much cultural work has gone into establishing certain objects as art or not art or decorative art or fine art. And to point out that these categories were actually under a huge amount of debate and conversation in Britain at the time. So in other words, the movement, let's say, inspired by John Ruskin and William Morris, the arts and crafts movement, at the same time as all of these other things are happening, right? Folklore and anthropology and world's fairs, and it's all happening in the same moment of the, of the late 19th century. You know, Ruskin and Morris and their followers were saying, you know, fine art is a modern invention and we should be thinking about the art of the everyday or we should be thinking about what does our fine art look like what is it for what is it doing is it is it full of meaning to us or is it empty of meaning if it's empty of meaning why do we have it so i think trying to put these different conversations together again for me is trying to look at the cultural work that these institutions are doing and over and over again to me they are creating definitions, creating frames of reference for looking at different kinds of objects that then seem naturalized, normalized, so that we think, oh, that object just is art. Oh, that object is an artifact. Um, when in fact, those categories and those ways of seeing those objects have a history, which of course, because I'm a historian, right, I'm interested in the history behind these cultural categories. We've been talking a lot about the mechanics of museums and how these objects came to reside in them. But I wonder if you could speak to the ethics of curation in the modern day. What kinds of issues do museums and curators have to reckon with? I really love the way you framed that the ethics of curation and museums. And I think one of the things that's important to think about with that is the question of restitution or reparation. That is, so many of these objects that we're talking about today went to Europe and often we say, you know, these ob objects from colonized cultures are now in Europe, right? Okay, well, the question is, how did they get to Europe? <laughs> you know, did someone take them, <laughs> right? Like, they're like avoiding the passive voice. They didn't just like fly over to Europe on their own. How did they get to Europe? Why does Europe have them? And I think so often we focus on the past injustice, the past theft, or the conditions under which someone, a collector, uh, obtained those objects. And that's not wrong. I'm not saying don't focus on the past injustice. All I want to point out is that we should think about why these objects are still important now and the cultural work that they're doing now. Because if the objects were not meaningful, then I think all these institutions would just give them back, right? Like if they didn't mean something to the contemporary understanding of the United States or Britain or France or Germany or whatever it is. There's a lot of questions now about how we tell history and what is responsible history and what is history that will lead to anti-racism or to greater justice. But I think in the question over restitution or reparation, often we help to continue the idea that only Europe or only European cultures are universal and able to take a scientific and objective stance towards culture. And that itself is a product of the 19th century. 
I'm not saying that no science or no truth is possible. I'm just saying that the way that people have used these objects has been always about their own culture, right? And so if we try to make it, it's like, no, 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 the British were just trying to understand other cultures. Sure, but they also always very explicitly use their own culture as the measure of all others. And that's what I think is so dangerous and what we need to try to see more, right? That these objects are part of a framing of the culture that they've they've come into. You've raised so many interesting points, not only about museum studies, but the ethics of researching history itself. Thank you so much for sharing. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. You have been listening to Dr. Amy Woodson-Bolton on 19th century imperialism, artifact acquisition, and the ethics of museums. For more on her research and these fascinating topics, please visit craftingcommunities.net. I'm speaking with Nicola Watson today. Hello, Nicola. Hello. Very nice to be speaking with you, Jessie. Nicola and I are going to be speaking about a book that she's written, a very wonderful book called The Author's Effects. And Nicola, in your book, you studied writers' house museums. Could you introduce the topic for people who maybe have never heard of a writer's house museum before? Yes, of course. So about um, 15 to 20 years ago, I got very interested in why it was that people wanted to go to places associated with authors and their books. And so I wrote a history of that desire to become a literary tourist uh, called The Literary Tourist. The Writer's House Museum has different names depending where you are in the world. I decided to call it Writer's House Museums because I like the apostrophe, because I, I was interested in the way that the author was made to own a place or and indeed a place was made to own an author. And essentially, this is a relatively small category of museums where usually, though not always, a house that has been associated with a writer, they either lived there, they were born there, they died there, very occasionally they had a holiday there, is preserved for some reason or other. So in part, that will be because of serendipity. It wasn't bombed, it wasn't sold, it wasn't flattened for skyscrapers, it was loved by relatives, the author was famous enough, or perhaps they wrote something particularly important there. You know, since we're speaking um, on Victorian samplings, it is true to say that on the whole, such houses were saved one way or another, largely out of a Victorian sensibility. And I got very interested in how, uh, how a culture could decide to do something quite so expensive. It's very expensive to maintain a house just for a dead person and the people who admire uh, their forms of imagination. And you can see this in Walter Scott's house, Abbotsford, very specifically. Because Scott dies in 1832, his family inherit Scott's own part of Abbotsford, so famous, though, by 1832, that they can't make any changes to it. So they build on a whole huge extra wing for the family to live in. So although nowadays, when you go to Abbotsford, the tour is very anxious to 
as it were, get you to the right part of Scott Abbotsford and to dismiss all the extra bit. The extra bit is the evidence of how expensive and how important it was to preserve Scott's own fantasy castle and by extension, some sort of location through which you could access his imagination. So they are a peculiar comp composite of a house which may or may not be returned to what it was when the writer was associated with it, plus everything that anybody has ever been able to collect to go in it. And that will be a miscellany usually of sentimental relics, often preserved by families, and other things that um, are more valuable on the open market, manuscripts, books, and such like. And they will be put together usually on the evidence of travel accounts, um, letters, diaries, pictures, contemporary representations, that sort of thing. So that's the practical side of it from the museum curator's point of view. If you have a look at all writers' house museums, you begin to realise that they exist on a sort of spectrum between what you might call the realist and the fantastic. So the realist, which sits heavily towards the biographical, it's centred on evoking the writer's body at home. And it depends on a number of fictions that, you know, as I list them, they will feel familiar to you, I feel. You know, as though the writer had just left and might walk in at any moment. As though the writer has just died and left everything, you know, at the moment that death took them. It will also uh, depend on the most peculiar fiction of all, which is that this house is the house that the writer lived in. Well, most writers, for a variety of reasons, have lived one way or another in many houses. So houses will have to learn how to collapse the whole of a writer's life into one site. If your writer's only lived there for eight years, uh, but you've still got to evoke their childhood right through to their death, you start to develop a system whereby rooms tend to have to be devoted either to different periods or to different characters within that writer's life. There's always a pull against realism. The other end of the spectrum is what I call the bookish, although actually it's usually anti-book. And that is an effort to, as it were, get the writer's imagination out of the writer's body, but also out of the, the print media to somehow create a sort of phantasmagoria within a space that may be overlaid on this realist furniture. You know, this was really the, the chair in which Dickens sat, for example. There's that famous unfinished picture of Dickens, since we're talking about Victorians at the minute, where he's sitting in his chair at his desk, but above him are floating clouds of his characters. So it's the floating clouds of characters that I'm describing as bookish, and you get um, different ways of doing that. So inscription written on the walls, as at Burns's cottage or at Coleridge's cottage, or at Sissinghurst with Vita Sackville West poetry, or the most recently, um, they've just been putting in augmented reality into John Milton's cottage, Chalfont St. Giles. So that the idea is this astonishing experience of walking into a perfect English cottage in a perfect English village, but arriving in an enormous cosmic space of paradise lost, peopled by angels, demons, and all done by the um, miracle of augmented reality. So you've been mentioning the importance of staging objects in such a way that evokes the writer's body. 
And in your book, you say that there is some pressure to be at best an absent friend. I'm wondering if Writers House Museum's gesture to readers' impulse to get close to the author or to feel as if they are close to the author. What do you think about that? And how do you think the author's body comes into play there? What readers want is to replicate in their own personal physicality the sort of relationship that you only get with a book through solitary reading. Uh, so it's got very little to do with communal reading, for example, or, or indeed even theatre, actually. But that intense experience people have sat in, often in private rooms, um, with the voice of the author often coming through. And, you know, there are many authors who don't elicit this desire, partly because there is no voice of the author in quite that way. What is hoped for, in a sense, is to be present with the author and to, as it were, interview them, as, it, as you might say, or, or have a private tour or a private visit or, you know, all that sort of literary lion hunting that you can go in for, of course, if the writer is alive. It's a lot easier to get through the door when they're dead. What I think is interesting about Writers' House Museums is how they try to do that, making the past lie alongside or slip with the present, which means the author's body slips, as it were, along the reader's body. And there are one or two systems for doing that. So, for example, in Dove Cottage, one of the things they do is turn the page of Dorothy's journal over to the equivalent day of the year that the tourist is making their own visit. Or there are soundscapes, some of them are live and some of them are recorded, triggered by um, you moving around. Um, the one that I think is that I'm most interested in at the moment is simply putting flowers in that the author definitely arranged themselves, like Karen Blixen. The idea being really that you fold time up together um, so that it becomes seasonal. So you are at the same time, in the same place and in the same season as the author. The other way of doing it is to create encounters at life size, as you might say. It's why occasionally people create dummies. There's a, a dummy of Charles Kingsley in Clavelli. It's why in particular clothes and certain sorts of clothes are displayed because they give you a sense of size. It's one reason why the writer's chair is so important. You then, as it were, coalesce your body with the writer's body in, in the negative space created by the chair. And then after that, there are games that houses can play with readers. So, for example, Chawton Cottage, which is Jane Austen's house, includes a Scrabble set spelling out blunder. You only know, if you have read Emma very closely, really, that that's an in-joke. There are less in-jokey ways of doing it. They include installations, performances, communal readings allowed, walking about um, in the footsteps of the author with little readings, either on posts or signposts or by tour guides. But the effort is to um, lay your imagination alongside the authorial imagination, but by occupying the same physical space. And the, I think the most modern version of that, fascinatingly, um, is the selfie. 
where you know you take you take a picture of yourself at, at the very windowsill where Hardy crafted Tesla Dermophils or whatever. And I think that the impulse to do that and put it up on Instagram, for example, is uh, in miniature what I'm talking about. In Keats House, they put on a, an exhibition for the bicentenary of 2020 of the manuscript of Ode to a Nightingale. They put it in a glass case, but they put it in the room in which Joseph Seven had portrayed John Keats listening to the Nightingale and writing. And they hang the portrait and put the manuscript in the same room that Seven painted. On top of that, they put the chair in the right place and you were invited to sit in the very chair in which John Keats is depicted writing the Ode to the Nightingale with the manuscript to the side. It seems like building a, a fan culture, a fan community, is one of the purposes of the Writer's House Museum, in spite of the fact that much of the fantasizing seems to be based on, like you said, the solitary reading experience, referencing things that Keats's readership did after Keats's life. This seems like in a way, the Writer's House Museum is um, fueling this unfolding corpus around Keats. Well, I think that it's a fascinating question because um, the move within the museum sector has certainly been to try to explicitly convene community in relation to these houses. And when I say explicitly, I mean actual people all in the same room at the same time. <laughs> um, preferably people who would not themselves particularly have chosen to go. <laughs> you know, I was talking to Jeff Cowton, um, whose work at Dove Cottage, uh, you know, I think is absolutely wonderful. He had just been showing a group of Syrian refugees the manuscript of Dorothy Wordsworth's journal. His enthusiasm is extremely infectious. One asks oneself what's going on. What's going on really is the interpolation of those um, refugees with each other and in relation to a house, a landscape and a heritage. Um, so there's community building like that. I always think there's this really fascinating tension, however, between the sort of things that the Victorians were very keen about around um, writers' houses, whereby you were encouraged to write on the walls and to leave your mark there. In order that the house became rather more about admiration across time and space of, of readers. So this is true of Petrarch's house in Aqua. It was true, of course, of Shakespeare's birthplace where you can still see the windows are, which are etched with the admiring um, signatures of various people. Um, they have mostly been or often been especially in the, the, the more frequented places, first of all, abandoned in favour of the visitor book, and then secondly, actually whitewashed out. I mean, you would be in trouble if you wrote um, on the wall of Shakespeare's birthplace these days. And very interestingly, I spent a fair amount of time at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust trying to persuade um, the trust that what would be a good idea would be a sort of virtual graffiti board where people could leave their signatures um, in such a way that you convened what is in fact around Shakespeare's or global fan culture um, in uh, something that was rather, that was material in 
performance in that you would really write in it, but but as it were virtual in the sense that you could project it or something, but it wouldn't have to be actually be on the walls. Okay, so we have brushed against the topic of the virtual a few times. Can you tell me about and uh, can you talk about some of the objectives with your project? I began to create not so much a virtual museum. I wanted to put together objects from many different collections. And this project is called Rêve, from the French Dream. And it's an acronym that stands for Romantic Europe, the virtual exhibition. And the idea was really to put together um, a whole load of objects that were or still are considered especially romantic from collections across Europe proposed by different scholars and different curators from different collections, really to interrogate the whole question of uh, specifically what romantic material culture was or how it had come about and to see whether it changed one's understanding of, in particular, European romanticism. And I suppose the really interesting thing is to see, or to be reminded, of how many objects in Rarev are really, in fact, Victorian ideas of the romantic. That's why they were preserved. That's why they um, acquired and accrued various sorts of value. And I thought it would be interesting to experiment, this of course is well before COVID, with what the practical and intellectual advantages of such an exhibition were. So, you know, there are some obvious ones. It's very cheap. (laughs) (laughs) You can write much longer captions. You can reorganise it in uh, in any way you like. Um, So you can change your structures of knowledge and your structures of meaning quite fast around these objects. It it also, as it were, is collaborative and required people to think really very hard about what, why they would propose an object. So that was the the advantage. The disadvantage is related in a sense to my work on Writers House Museums, and it's to do with dislocation. Now, I mean, of course, if you want to include a mountain like Mont Blanc, which we do, um, you need to dislocate it because you can't (laughs) get it into the ordinary museum. And the other problem I found was that museums are worried about attracting real people in the door, because that is how they make quite a lot of their money. So that suggesting to them that there was a brilliant way in which they could make their collections available for free (laughs) (laughs) turned out to be a remarkably academic fantasy in that (laughs) sense. In a funny sort of way, the real problem facing Writers' House Museums is the moment when people stop reading the books. Perhaps I should say the moment that people stop reading the books and making films out of them so that most people don't have to read the books. (laughs) I guess at that point, certain fan references like Scrabble, spelling out the word blunder, are lost. Yes, I mean, so they're at once elegantly clever, but they're lost for sure on anybody who hasn't Um, read the book. Uh, Because this is a podcast on 19th century material culture, I would be remiss not to ask you, is there a specific Victorian era writer's house museum that is particularly intriguing for you? Yes, although it won't be the one that you expect, um, I don't think. I just recently made uh, all my colleagues at the Open University go for an away day to a house called Nebworth Park, Nebworth with a K. And that was the creation of the extremely famous, extremely successful 
almost totally unread Victorian writer, Sir Edward Bulwer-Lytton. You read any of his stuff? No. Mm, about 32 novels. <laughs> and when you read the list of his novels, you realise that you know the titles because they, they crop up in all the other Victorian novels as things that people are reading. Of course, he was, he was great friends with Dickens. I mean, Bulwer-Lytton was, amongst other things, the person who suggested the happier ending to Great Expectations. He builds himself this enormous, magnificent house, which is modelled in the first instance on Strawberry Hill, and then really gets going around the 1850s in, as Victorian Gothic. And all inside it, it's got poetic inscriptions by Bulwer Lytton. What really interests me is, is the way that Nebworth is marketed now. It is marketed mostly not as a writer's house museum, and it gives one much to think about this. It's created by a writer. It was thought much like Abbotsford to express within physical reality the writer's historical and antiquarian imagination. But now, it is used to express the, the dynastic, aristocratic inheritance of the house. The family has been important in all sorts of ways, um, mostly in politics and the arts. And it brings it to, to the fore, I think, the difference between the aristocratic grand house, even if it was occupied by a writer. What that house means is the continuity of dynastic occupation of that land. And, and the house, indeed. And other writers' houses, which are all about something quite different, um, they're usually, even where they're pretending to be aristocratic, as in Strawberry Hill or Abbotsford, for example, they are actually monuments to temporariness, to individual and individualistic occupation by a surprise genius, if you like, who becomes important because they express something important about the land and by extension, the nation, usually. You can then extend that out sometimes to empire or to other forms of cultural imperialism. But that is absolutely the heart of the writer's house, that the idea of a writer's house is that it's quite strange that something so remarkable arose there. Whereas an aristocratic house, the whole point is that it's not strange, it's entirely natural, but in a different way. So there's a distinction between the naturalness of aristocracy, which is what the country house argues. So at Sydney's house, for example, and the nativeness of Shakespeare, who arises somehow from the land, from the flowers, from the bees, from the heart of England. And it happens once and once only. It doesn't keep on repeating. You know, it's not that you know, there's a bull where listen knows but there isn't a Shakespeare nose. <laughs> I guess what we learn from writers' museums is the way that we create these sacrosanct spaces and narrativize the connection between um, immaterial culture and the land or the, the objects that we've organized on these spaces. Yes, I think, I mean, I think that's brilliantly put. And I think the point about these spaces is that they are the place where the material and the immaterial so interwoven that they are indeed semi-sacred. Thank you so much, Nicola. This has been such an informative talk. It's just, this is a topic that just keeps on giving. So thank you so much. <laughs> well, thank you.
On behalf of the Victorian Samplings team, I extend a very warm thank you to Amy Woodson Bolton, Julie Hollenbach, and Nicola Watson. We're grateful for the time they spent with us, for all that they shared, and for how they let us follow them to and think critically with them about some fascinating places and spaces. This podcast is the co-creation of Anne Hung, Jesse Cron, Natalie Lovetri, Lucy Von Schilling, and me, Vanessa Warren. We do our work on the territory of the Lungkwangan and Sanchothan-speaking communities of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Wasanich peoples, and on Treaty 1 territory, traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. Victorian Samplings is the podcast of the Crafting Communities Project. Learn more about the Crafting Communities Project by visiting craftingcommunities.net or by following us on Instagram at crafty underscore Victorians. You can email us at craftyvictorians at gmail.com and you can follow us on Twitter at craftyvictorian. The Crafting Communities Project is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the Universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. Crafting Communities is a collaboration between Andrew Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. Thank you for listening.